0: Tonight we have just a great portion of scripture, and I have to tell you, like with all of my heart, I'm really happy to get to Revelation chapter 19, because not that I don't value uh, seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments, but just from the perspective of a teacher, it does get a little fatiguing when uh, we're just talking about mass destruction. And so it's exciting to talk about the second coming tonight. But let's pray, and uh, we have the whole chapter to deal with tonight, so we've got to get to work. Father, thank you so much, God, for your word and we rely on your holy Spirit God we don't rely on on a, a human vessel or instrument God we don't mind re, we don't rely on the intellect of a, a person. God, we rely on you. there is no understanding your word apart from divine revelation, illumination, and that's what we need tonight God, we need it we Maybe our hearts are wide open and we just really do perceive ourselves to be in a place where we are ready to receive anything that you have for us. And yet then on the other hand, God, maybe maybe our, our hearts are just a little resistant or, or Father, there's a spiritual lethargy that's crept in or um, God, maybe unbeknownst to us, there are areas that are just sealed off to you. And we confess tonight that That in in all of those cases, God, we are desperate, desperate for you to speak to us tonight. We're hungry for you, God. We want to leave this place with a word, God, a word that you've given to us that that no circumstance, no human could steal away. God, a word that would build us up and strengthen us, a word that would lift up our heads and, and fill us with hope and joy, Got a word that would revive our passion and fire for you. That's the desire of our hearts. And so, Father, we pray, be merciful to us tonight and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there was a recent poll that was taken, and uh, this poll, this is so interesting. It was for uh, the Christian and the non Christian. And the conclusion or the result of the poll was this the question was, do you believe that the end is near? And that Messiah is coming back. And 66% of people across the board, both believer and non-believer, said that they believe that the end is near and that Messiah is coming back. How that works out with a non-believing person, I'm not necessarily sure with respect to the Messiah coming back. uh, But I do think that there is just this sense, you know, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, there's a sense that time itself is wrapping up. Like we are witnessing events, you know, unfolding around us. Uh, and this was done, this poll was done a number of years ago, so maybe even more now than, than then. Uh, but we're witnessing events that give us all just the sense that, that something big is about to happen, you know, that God is on the move. And, and tonight we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, because, uh, because I do have good news for you. He is coming back, and His coming is not that far away. It is, it is good news It's reason to praise, and I don't know, I don't know what you came in with tonight. I don't know what heavy load you're bearing or what discouragement you were confronted with today. I don't know what bomb dropped on you, and inevitably, like, I know that there are some of us who got news about something that just maybe saddened our hearts or or whatever the case may be. Uh, But we have good news as we look to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is Uh, interesting to contrast his second coming to his first coming and also to contrast it with the rapture. Of course, we know the rapture is when Jesus comes for his saints. The second coming is when Jesus comes with his saints. Uh, In the first coming, he came to comfort. In the second coming, he comes to conquer. In the second coming, he comes on a white horse. In the first coming, he came on a donkey. In his second coming, he is crowned with many crowns. In the first coming, he is crowned with the crown of thorns. In the second coming, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. In the first coming, he is the king of the Jews. The Greek word that's used for the second coming is parousia, and it means the arrival of someone who is expected to come. So we're talking about an appointment that's been set. Uh, Of course, with respect to the second coming, we're not necessarily sure what that particular day and time is, but there is an appointment that's been set. Just as he was faithful to come the first time, he will be faithful to come the second time. And in his second coming, this is just a a glorious thing to consider, in the second coming, the whole sky will be lit up with the glory of Christ. Man, that is gonna be... Now, my view, of course, we'll talk about this later as I answer some questions that were submitted... My view is that uh, we'll have a unique perspective and that we'll be coming with him in the clouds. And so we're not going to have really the perspective of seeing his coming, the second coming, from uh, an earthly perspective, we will be with him, but nevertheless, his glory is going to light up the whole sky. It's an interesting chapter, it's really divided into two sections, uh, and I think that you'll see the clear division, verses 1 to 10 and then verses 11 to 21. Verses 1 to 10 really convey an attitude of praise that precedes his coming. Uh, And I have just a great appreciation for this reality. There's no doubt uh, that the revelation could have gone from the destruction of economic, religious Babylon straight into the second coming of Christ. But not that this is a parenthetical, uh, but it is Like a beautiful precedence that before his second coming, there is just an absolute tremendous amount of praise in the heavens. And really, I do think that this praise culminates the the judgment and the justice of God as we've seen it poured out. Uh, through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, like I mentioned, and the bowl judgments, all culminating in revelation seventeen and eighteen with the destruction of the one world religious system and the one world economic and political system and We know that part of the praise is connected to the unfolding of these events and the expression of god 's justice because these are the things that uh, the host of heaven actually gives God praise for it 's going to be very specific so as we're wrapping up the judgment and the justice of God, you know, it's kind of been, in a sense, maybe a little bit beleaguering as we've taken our time really considering the depth of God's wrath. Uh, But as it culminates, there is an expression of praise that kind of closes out that whole section, which would have been chapter 6 to chapter 19. And then, before we get to the second coming, the judgment of the nations, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne of judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, and the consummation of all things as God makes all things new, there is all of that preceded by praise. You guys know how important praise is in your life, right? You know how important praise is in your life. We're going to talk today uh, a little bit about what heaven teaches us about praise, and you know, as you consider verses 1 to 10, we're going to handle the whole chapter, God willing, tonight. But as you read through these verses, you're going to notice that there are a variety of different entities that are expressing praise to God. Uh, there is praise that comes from a great multitude, from the 24 elders. Uh, there, is, there is a voice from the throne of God that teaches all people to praise Uh, Again, there is the great multitude expressing praise, and then the angel, there is an angel that teaches John to worship God and God alone. So check this out with me in verse 1 of chapter 19. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, what do they say? Yeah, say it like you mean it. That's better. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power. There's a lot of ands, like we could stick more ands in there. Belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, and her smoke, this is just so, hey, by the way, this is part of the praise in heaven. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. So there's a take-home verse that you can remember tonight. And uh, you'll repeat it again in heaven on one day about her smoke rising up forever and ever in heaven. So (laughs) you're like, wow, how does that apply to today? Well, you know, the the voice of the great multitude teaches us that praise belongs to God. Praise belongs to and is reserved to God. Uh, It is, I think, interesting that this is the first time that the word hallelujah appears in the New Testament. In fact, it appears four times, and the four times that the word appears is right here in chapter 19. We're going to talk about what that word means in just a minute. But there is a, you you can kind of catch the the pathos of uh, the sentiment behind this. There is a celebration right? There's a celebration. I mentioned to you that this this piece of praise is tied to the culmination of God's wrath being poured out so extensively. And as all of this is being wrapped up, and we know a little bit about like the feeling of that because we've kind of endured the reading of God's wrath, there is this tremendous expression about celebration. And I think that the first thing we learn about praise is praise for sure is about God. I, I think sometimes, you know, when we're in heaven, the focal point of our praise will be the Lord. I think sometimes when we think of heaven, we can think of it in such self-centered terms, right? I mean, what we really want to know about is our new body. You know, am I going to be short? And am I going to be tall? Um, am, am I going to be lean and mean? Or you fill the blank in. Am I going to have hair or, you know... The alternative. And and I think, you know, sometimes, will we be be cruising in heaven? What are we going to be doing? You know, how how enjoyable is heaven going to be? A lot of times, you know, we can be so self-centered. Let's just be honest as Christians. Even when we think about heaven, we find ourselves orienting it around ourselves instead of God. And heaven really is not about us. Heaven is about him and only God. Like, there is a clear... uh, Acknowledgment and recognition in heaven that God is the only one that saves that God is the only one that 's worthy of glory that God is the only one who 's worthy to be honored, and that ultimately all power comes from the Lord our God look, I think that we we know that in some sense, but but the fact is we even ourselves can get a little confused in the world that we live in because because not only do we sometimes orient heaven around ourselves. We orient this life around ourselves. Sometimes we think that salvation is a function of our own efforts. Sometimes as we serve God, you know, it's not always about the glory of God and the honor of God. We'd like to steal a little of that ourselves. Sometimes we think it's our efforts or our abilities or our capacity and network or our creativity that that causes the work of God to be accomplished, well, there will be no question in heaven. That's all I'm saying to you. There will be no question in heaven. I mean, when we are there, it will be definite, it will be definitive that all of this is a function of God and his doings. And then in addition to that, we recognize a, a phrase that was conveyed already a number of times, and I've kind of, I've kind of hammered this nail a number of times because i just think it's so important you know as the great multitude and uh, we're talking about millions and millions maybe hundreds of millions of beings the great multitude definitely representing the church of god over the course of time old testament saints uh, included in that may be angelic beings we've talked about the variety of different angelic beings the host of heaven itself and so we're talking about just a massive number of people making this declaration, or angelic beings. Uh, but one thing also that they acknowledge is that every judgment of God has been true and righteous. Every single judgment. And of course, this particular aspect of God's judgment is tied to uh, the recent expression of judgment on the harlot that one world system that was established by the antichrist. But I think it's important for us just to mention again that everything that God does is true and righteous. And and I think it's important for us to remember that because the adversary is always conveying to the world and even to Christians sometimes that that God is unfair. God's unfair and is dealing with, with humanity. There's always this question that somehow God has left something out. And, of course, you know, this has been the lie of the devil from the very beginning. Uh, this is what he said to Eve, you know. This is the, what really what's happening here. First of all, has God really said that? And then not only that, but the truth is this. God's been holding out on you. God's not playing fair because God knows that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be just like him. And so there's this, there's this constant idea that is perpetuated by the adversary that somehow God in his dealing with humanity, God in his dealings with humanity is, is acting in an unfair, unjust way. And there's just this reiteration again that everything that God does is true and righteous. So the voice of the great multitude teach us, number one, that praise belongs to God Then we see in verse 4 what the 24 elders declare. The Bible says in verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they do what they always do. They fall down and they worship, they proskuneo, they give uh, affection and adoration and reverence to God. They worship God who sat on the throne saying, what do they say? Amen. That was really pathetic, all right? I mean, I'll tell you guys, you're not ready for heaven. If if you're wondering, like, Lord, why are you holding out? Why, why, Why have you not come back? Well, I'll tell you because you are not ready, okay? So let's try it again. All right. Do you guys know what hallelujah means? All right. Hallel and Yahweh, it's a compound word. It means praise Yahweh, or praise the Lord. And then amen means so be it, or let it be established, or we all collectively as one are in agreement. When we say, when we're praying together and you say amen to someone's prayer, what you're saying is, I am in agreement with what has just been prayed. So next time someone's praying, make sure they're praying according to the will of God before you say amen. All right. The word praise means to honor, to esteem, to commend, and cherish God through declaring truths about Him. Let me just say it again. When you praise, right? We just had a time of uh, praise and worship. They they are distinct words that convey two different things. But praise means to honor, to esteem, to commend, and to cherish God through declaring truths about Him. I love this aspect of uh, our time of singing to the Lord. You know, to really focus in on who God is and to commend him and to, to declare those truths about him as we sing to him. In fact, this word praise comes from a French word that means to prize. So when we praise, we are prizing God. We are expressing an estimation of his value, Somebody said this about praise. Praise is the soul in blossom. Man, I I thought that was just so good. I I don't know where we were at. Rachel and I were. I just got back, so I have jet lag. And just give me some grace. I don't remember where we were, but we saw Rose. Where was it, babe? Okay, I didn't hear that. She has jet lag too. So... (laughs) But I saw a rose, and, and we saw a rose It was beautiful, and I normally stop and smell the roses. This one was like really close to the ground, and so I wasn't going to spend the time bending over to smell the rose. But, but you know, a rose in full blossom is beautiful, it's fragrant, right? It emits this uh, extraordinary fragrance that is so, is so pleasant, it's so pleasing. And I think that's what happens when we praise God, we're like a, a fragrant blossoming rose to the lord there's this beautiful thing that that is coming forth from us you know it doesn't necessarily mean that that we're happy about the circumstances of our lives it doesn't necessarily mean that we're on the top of the mountain we might be in the valley of the shadow of death sometimes those those are the most meaningful moments of 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 praise to god you know when when you're in the valley and when you're struggling and yet you can you can declare aspects and elements about the character and the nature of God and just acknowledge who He is and as an expression of praise to Him. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? That is the soul in blossom. And we're going to talk about the value of that in, in times where we might be struggling. Maybe we're battling with our own failure or, or our own inadequacies or maybe there are difficulties that we're dealing with circumstantially. Man, an antidote for that is praise. Praise is so good, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but praise is so good because it orients us around God and not ourselves. Psalm 147.1 says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. So good. Even if your voice is horrible. Praise is beautiful. Psalm one thirteen three. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is is to be praised. Look, in other words, you wake up in the morning and, and you're like, man, I don't have a reason to praise. Yes, you. Yes, you do, because His name is. It is to be praised. It's, this is not a, a suggestion, it is a, a reality that that causes us to lean into it like a commandment. In fact, you have a hard time getting out of bed, put on some praise music and let the Lord lift your heart so that you are lifted out of bed and as you begin that song of praise to him in the morning, let it continue throughout the day until the setting of the sun. Our whole day should be should be a day of praise. Verse five says, then a voice, so another voice, just just want you to consider the collective witness of heaven here. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. Now, normally, uh, the voice that has come from the throne has actually been the voice of God. It's been clear to us from the context that's been conveyed, that the voice from the throne is the voice of God. However, in this particular circumstance, uh, this doesn't seem like it's the voice of God. It's another voice. You say, well, what voice is this other voice? And my answer to you is, I have absolutely no idea. What I do know is this, that this voice teaches us that praise is for all of us. It teaches us that praise is for all of us. Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, who? both small and great. Look, you're, you're never too big to praise God. You're never too sophisticated to praise God. You've never reached some you know, level of success in your life where you are above praise. The voice from heaven says, everyone who calls himself a servant of the Lord, this is like a collective encouragement to the people of God, both in heaven and on earth, to praise the Lord. Look, I think that there are Many reasons why sometimes we struggle praising God. I think, you know, the typical go-to for pastors is, well, you know, we don't like our voice. Um, we don't really believe that we have a, 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 an offering that's meaningful to the Lord. And so sometimes uh, we don't convey our praise to God because we're insecure. And of course, that's true. I think, though, more often than not, sometimes we don't open our mouth to praise to praise the Lord because we might be struggling with something. You know, maybe we're battling sin in our life. Uh, Maybe we're going through a a moment of discouragement. Maybe things haven't panned out the way that we've wanted them to or we've expected them to, and so we might be just a little disillusioned with God. You know what I'm talking about? Like like you, you drag yourself to church. Someone here tonight, I know, dragged himself or dragged herself to church. You really didn't want to come. Don't raise your hand right now. But, but you really didn't want to come. And you know, you might have, you might have it, might, it took you everything that you had, right? And there was every reason not to come, right? You're tired. You put in a full, full day. You dealt with a whole bunch of nonsense. You're wiped out. You don't want to deal with some crazy Christians. It's, you know, because there are a few of those in our church. <laughs> You know, maybe, maybe you, you're, you're struggling with your spouse, and so you're in the middle of a heated argument, and now it's like, how can we go? How can we go to church? Because, you know, we just had a knockdown, drag-out argument, and, and, and to that, of course, I would say church is exactly where you need to be, but there are all sorts of reasons, all sorts of reasons and justifications and, and excuses, and, and tonight, don't, don't misunderstand me. I absolutely am not saying that when we gather together as a people of God, this is the only place you can praise. In fact, I would say this is a piece of your praise, right? In fact, this might be a small piece because we're together for 90 minutes depending on how long I teach. Maybe two hours tonight, who knows? But we're, we're together for a very short period of time, And so, of course, you know that this is true. Your your, your bedroom is a place of praise. Your kitchen is a place of praise. Your garage, your man cave, your man cave, your man cave is sanctified to the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? It is not a place for you to escape from God. It is a place for you to dedicate yourself to God, your man cave, is a place of praise. Your car is a place of praise. When you go for a walk, that is a place of praise. When you're riding your bike, when you're, when you're out with your kids, when you're on the soccer field or the baseball field, all those places are places for praise. And you know what, when you, when you set yourself to have a disposition of praise, all of a sudden the vista opens to all of the opportunities. You see what God's doing even in the smallest thing and it leads you to praise. The Bible says in Hebrews 13:15, "Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name." Man, that is just good. How often is it? Is it on Thursday nights or Sunday mornings or when you're in your life group? No, it is continually at all times. How much, how much wasted time in our thinking, how much self-imposed discouragement would we be delivered from if we just chose to praise God? We are saved to praise. That's what the voice teaches us. Uh, I'm not, when I say the voice, I'm not talking about the television program. Verse 6, and I, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude is the sound of many waters, and is the sound of mighty thundering, saying, <laughs> all right, you did it right, like 90%. I'll, I'm going to give you a pass on that one. Hallelujah, why? For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And so this, of course, is the great uh, multitude again, and he describes this voice if you if you guys have ever been to niagara falls and you have just heard the sheer power of that waterfall you know this is this is the idea that is in john's mind not that john lived near the niagara falls i know someone's thinking that right now but you understand he know he knew by the mediterranean and of course other water sources up in the banyas the power uh, of water falling. And so this was just uh, an overwhelming sound, reminded him as the sound of many waters or mighty thunderings. And then he makes that, that proclamation, again, with that compound word, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Why? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He, he's demonstrated it in an, in an absolutely undeniable, uh, unqualified way. As the expression of God's wrath has been poured out in seals and trumpets and in bowls, it has been an um, undeniable expression that God rules and reigns over all things. The 24 elder, elders teach us what it is that praise means. The voice from the throne teaches us that praise is for all of us. And then this great multitude once again reminds us that through praise we enter his presence and experience his power. So the voice goes on to say, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These these are the true sayings of god so verses six to nine once again we have like i said the voice of the great multitude making this amazing expression that we know to be true that god is omnipotent or that god is all-powerful theological term typically uh coupled with the omniscience of god and the omnipresence of god Omnipotence means that there is no one stronger than the Lord. And then in addition to that, nothing is beyond his rule. Nothing is beyond the rule of God. So he is, in fact, all-powerful, and he rules over all things. I said this to you earlier. I just want to say it again. Uh, Praise is what the doctor has ordered. You know, we do sometimes center our life experience around ourselves. And when you and I praise it gets our attention off of ourselves and onto God. When you and I praise, it gets our attention off of our circumstances and onto God, right? Because guaranteed, there are some circumstances in your life that have the tendency to pull you down like a millstone, stuff you're dealing with that you just don't like, and praise lifts you up out of that pit and focuses you on the Lord. And then in addition to that, praise gives us something Uh, to focus on in the sense that we can praise God at all times because the value of God never changes. Look, God is the unchanging one. He is the immutable one. There is one thing that doesn't change in this life, and that is the Lord. Everything else, everything else is in a constant state of flux, right? Relationships are, financial standing is, your opportunity in the work world, your ability to rise up the ladder uh, in, with respect to success, all of that is subject to change, but God himself never changes. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter into his courts with what? With praise. Did you do that tonight? We're, we're praising God here in these verses uh, because he's omnipotent. We also praise him because the marriage supper of the lamb has come. Remember, when we're talking about the church, the church is likened to the bride of Christ. And the imagery is of that Old Testament Jewish uh, process of being married to someone. It included the betrothal, the acceptance of the arrangement between uh, a young boy and a girl based on, you know, the the, the the fathers and the mothers agreeing to the betrothal. So there was the accept, acceptance aspect. Uh, in addition to that, there would come the time of preparation as they had reached the age of being able to be married. And then it would be the celebration, the consummation of that marriage. So at that point, the bridegroom would come unexpectedly, right? They'd been betrothed. This Engagement has been accepted by the parents. They have come of age. They've waited for this moment where they've come of age. And then the bridegroom would come at an unexpected time that was was dictated by his father. So the bridegroom didn't just come whenever he wanted to. It wasn't a matter of the bride and the bridegroom arranging a particular moment. Uh, The father of the bridegroom would designate a time... And that bridegroom would come in an unexpected moment. And it was the responsibility of the bride to keep herself in a uh, condition of preparation. She would be ready. She would be waiting. There was the expected coming. There was the parousia, right? There was an appointment, even though it wasn't totally clear when it was going to happen. She would have trimmed the wick of the candle. She would have made sure that she she was wearing the finest linen. And then he would come, and there would be a celebration, and they would consummate the the marriage relationship. And all of that is indicated in the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're talking about finally that consummation of all of the people of God being in the presence of God. Of the bridegroom. He goes on to say here, uh, it, it is interesting uh, that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint, saints. He says that in verse, verse 8. And just to make sure you don't misunderstand this, he is not. He is definitely not saying that our righteousness is a function of our activity. The original language gives uh, the clear impression that this righteousness is something that's imputed. It's something that's given. It's something that we, in fact, receive. Just like the apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, he's talking about his old life as a religious individual who was zealous for the law and then he was willing to forsake all of that that he would know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And then he goes on to say that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. And so your right standing before God is a function of your faith in Jesus aren't you thankful for that tonight? aren't you thankful that it's not a function of your, your perfection or you know your, your church attendance uh, or your faithfulness in, in devotions or how consistent you are in, in attending your life group or Aren't you thankful that your salvation or your righteousness is not a function of how many people you lead to the Lord? You know, like, I'm saying all of these things, and it might seem to you to be kind of just hyperbole, but the reality is this. In many churches, they've created a works-oriented salvation that is dependent upon your performance. But the reality is this. Our salvation is dependent Upon the performance of one individual, and that is Jesus Christ. He was crucified on the cross, and he himself said, It is finished. And when you put your trust and faith in him, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you as a gift. And we've already read that that the the fine white linen that we'll be wearing is in fact the righteousness of Jesus that's been imputed to us. That perfect life that he lived. He lived for us, not only that he could supply the perfect sacrifice, but that we might be robed in his perfection. So the voice of a great multitude uh, just indicates that through praise we enter his presence and experience his power. And then finally, verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. This is just a great verse. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Um, I just want to say briefly tonight that um, I'm not sure what it was. John for sure was overwhelmed by all of this. Like just the collective witness of heaven um, encouraging him in the aspect of praise. Uh, So that may have been in a sense overwhelming to him. What? possibly why he fell down before this angel. Um, it's possible also that John just was expressing the, the tendency that we all have as human beings to, to worship the vessel that God uses. You know, that is a natural tendency, unfortunately, that we all have. God uses an individual, or God uses a particular church, or um, it may be a teacher, it may be a worship leader, whatever it may be, and because they're an instrument of God, somehow We connect what what God is doing as a function of that particular individual, and we can find ourselves bending our knee before a person who is nothing more than an instrument in the hand of God. And, And in this case, you can see why John could have been so enticed to do so because it's not just a human being, it's an angelic being, you know, a mighty force to behold and so you can almost just uh, have some sense of, of empathy for John in this matter, but I, I just am so thankful for how strong the angel exhorts him, how strongly the angel exhorts him, see that you don't do that. Like just, John, cut it out. Get up, man. Like what are you thinking? Worship God and worship God alone. And, and I would just remind us tonight, that there's no human being that is worthy of your worship. There's only one. You were to bow the knee to only one person, and that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead, the triune Godhead is the only one that is worthy. And I say one is in a compound sense Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the only one that is worthy of your praise. He was overwhelmed. Uh, He says here that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I just want to mention uh, this. I, I do believe this means that the true spirit of prophecy always manifests itself in bearing witness to Jesus. The true spirit of prophecy always manifests itself in bearing witness to Jesus. So, in other words, every prophecy in the Bible is designed to point to the person of Christ. Period. Across Across the board. And then any time that someone is using the gift of prophecy in the sense of forthtelling or foretelling, it is still always to manifest in its bearing a, a witness to Jesus Christ. Just, just keep that in mind. Verse 11. We have seven minutes and 52 seconds to hit the rest of this. Now, as I haven't opened... I saw heaven open. There's five times in uh, the New Testament where we see, five times in the Bible where we see heaven opening. Specifically, I'm talking about a word-for-word phrasing. So the angels descending and uh, ascending on the ladder, the baptism of Jesus, Stephen being stoned, the sheet uh, in Peter's trance being lowered, and here at the second coming. Those are five times that we see heaven open. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Like this whole description of Jesus is so worthy Of your meditation, and I I hate just to roll through it tonight. But I want you to consider a couple of things tonight. In verse eleven, the Bible says. There, by the way, there are there are three times in verses eleven to sixteen that uh, John talks about his name. And so, the first time, this is what John says. He says he had a name. Oh, that 's the second time, sorry, hang on a second. Uh, this is jet lag it 's not my fault. now, as I saw heaven an open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, so he is called faithful and true. He is faithful. he will never fail you. He is true, there is no varying in him, there is no shadow there is no there is no shifting, there is no falsehood, um, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We talked about what Uh, It means, when the Bible says his eyes are like a flame of fire, he sees through all things. And then in addition to that, I would say that it also means his eyes burn with love for you. There are many crowns that are upon his head. And the word crown, of course, here is diadem, not stephanos. And this was the word that was used for a king. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. This is the first time that, that we see that. And so verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, uh, which of course is the Logos. The Logos, that word means the revelation of the eternal God in human form. This is the focal point of uh, John's gospel account. Of course, John's desire was that through the signs that he presented, people reading would understand that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in understanding that, they would have life in his name. And so he ties the Son of God to the word Logos. He is the word of God. In the the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh, right? This is the, the piece of manifestation, the personal revelation of God through his only begotten Son, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, And so again, John goes back to that gospel expression of who Jesus is uh, through the use of the word logos, the expression, the visible expression of the Father. Verse 14: And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath. Of Almighty God. So like I mentioned as we started this study tonight, the first time he came to comfort, the second time he came to conquer, the first time he came on a donkey, the second time he comes on a white horse, the first time he came to bring peace, the second time he comes to bring justice, the justice of God. And so we have the culmination of the great day of the Lord. He tramples out. This is Old Testament terminology. He tramples out the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. You know, I, I love the picture of Jesus carrying the lamb around his shoulder, and it's important for us to, to recognize and realize that he, of course, is the shepherd that loves us like that, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He is not to be, he is not He is not to be, I can't think of the word right now, but you know what? Don't mess with him. That's all, all I have to say. Don't mess with him because he can handle business. Verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name. This is the third time we see it. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is an expression of his royalty. So, so he is faithful and true, he is the word of God, he is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one greater than him. The Bible says in verse 17, that I saw an angel standing in the sun. That's, that's a pretty cool angel, I just want to say, 93 million miles away, 10,000 Kelvin, that's what the sun burns at, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty cool angel. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and... Gather together for the supper of the great God. So we have two suppers in chapter 19. We have the marriage uh, feast or the marriage supper of the lamb. And then we also have bird dinner. That's what this one's called. In, in the original language, it's called bird dinner. No, it's not, but you know what I'm saying. He is a warrior. He's greater than his enemies. The Bible says in verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave both small and great and I saw the beast the antichrist the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army so I just want to remind you we're talking about we're talking here about the valley of Armageddon we're talking about the great battle of Armageddon Um, if you've been to the To Israel with me, you've been to the Valley of Jezreel. It is a massive valley, and the Bible says, uh, as we consider this event with respect to other scriptures, that all of the armies of the world will have gathered in Israel, uh, in the Valley of Jezreel, uh, there at Mount Carmel, all the way to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And there's a difference of opinion where the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Decision Was. Some would say that it was all the way in Edom, which is modern day Jordan. Others would say the Valley of Jehoshaphat is, in fact, the Kidron Valley. Um, It really doesn't matter. We're talking about uh, the land being filled with all of the armies of the nations. And the idea is, you know, at the end of the great tribulation period, those nations have come to fight against each other. But then when Christ comes back, the Antichrist leads all those nations with all of their military, all of their technology against Jesus Christ in an effort, of course, to destroy him. And what we're going to see here in just a minute is that it's a pretty easy battle for Jesus to win. Um, The way I see these events unfolding is that Jesus first does go to edom he goes to the ancient city of petra the rock city of petra where jews have been in my estimation from isaiah chapter 11 where jews have been faithfully preserved by god for three and a half years remember after the abomination of desolation uh, the jews who are living in judah at that time uh, flee to a, a a city they're carried on the wings of an eagle eagle by god's grace and they're preserved in a city for three and a half years. My view is that Christ comes back and he first goes to the city of ancient city of Petra. He rescues those Jews. And then he goes to the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Armageddon, and he conquers all of the nations that are gathered there. And then he goes ultimately, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, to the Mount of Olives. Like any conquering king historically would have done, and he presents himself once again. Right? I mean, your your mind's thinking, well, he did that once at the triumphal entry. He did do that. He came lowly on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter nine, Zechariah chapter fourteen, verse four. He comes as a conquering king, touches down on the Mount of Olives. The mountain splits in two, and there's a massive river that flows from east to west. And the, the, the river that flows to the east goes down through the Jordan River into the Dead Sea and causes the Dead Sea, which is, which is called the Dead Sea because it's got no life in it. Nothing lives at the Dead Sea. It causes, this river causes the Dead Sea to be teeming with life. And so, man, I think that's awesome. Can, can you say amen to that? Like, that's, I think that's exciting. And so that, that I think, is how these events play out. The Bible says in verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in the presence, in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So, he goes to Edom, rescues the Jews that were safely preserved by God in the city of Petra, then comes to the valley of Jezreel. All, maybe, like, there's some indication that there are over 200 million soldiers with all of their technology and armaments gathered here in this valley. They point everything at Jesus, and um, the first thing Jesus does is he captures the Antichrist. I love the word capture for some reason, right? I mean, it's just so intentional. He captures the Antichrist, captures the false prophet, and he casts those two alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Listen, when we talk about hell, uh, hell really is, the, from my point of view, it is the lake of fire that's burning with brimstone. This is the ultimate destination for all who have rejected the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is a place of eternal punishment. Right now, it is empty. The first individuals that will in fact be cast into the lake of fire, this eternal place of punishment, the first two to be cast into it will be the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then verse 21, you say, well, where are all those souls held until then? And that's for a study for another time. Verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, on the horse, uh, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's the, that's the verse we're ending with tonight right there. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So, so I just want to say tonight, the power of the word of Christ. right? The power of the word of Christ. That, that sword that goes forth from his mouth. Like I've mentioned to you before, this is a Thracian sword. It's a long sword, able to deal a death blow with one swing. I just want to remind you... That his word is powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth. His word is powerful enough to curse the fig tree. His word is powerful enough to calm the wind and the wave. And his, his, his word is powerful enough to win the victory here over all of the nations that have come to fight against him. And in addition to that, his word is powerful enough to deal with any issue that you have happening in your life tonight. His word is powerful enough. Maybe tonight, maybe tonight you need the Lord to speak, peace be still. Maybe it's not the raging circumstances of your life, but man, your heart is just overwhelmed with turmoil, and you need that word from the Lord that would just console you and bring the, the, the soothing comfort of the Holy Spirit. He can do that to, to your heart tonight. Maybe tonight you need the power of his word to break the chains of sin in your life. Maybe there's just things you've been addicted to that you've not been able to free yourself from. I want to encourage you this evening. His word is powerful enough to set you free, to open that prison door, to break that chain. Maybe tonight the truth is you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You need to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And it is the gospel that has the power to save you and to rescue you and to deliver you. Listen, we've considered tonight that when we stand before God, it certainly will not be because of our own righteousness. It won't be because of the things that we've done. It will be because we put our trust and faith in the things that He has done. And so tonight, maybe your soul needs saving. You know, I talk a little bit about the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, that eternal place of punishment and, and in your heart, you're just a little concerned. You're a little afraid. That fear can be dealt with tonight if you would just put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You could leave this place with the assurance of everlasting life. Not because you've saved yourself, but because he, in fact, has saved you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Thank you, God, that, that you are mighty and powerful, and there's no one like you, and you're worthy of praise. Thank you tonight that we can see the effect, the effects of the power of your word displayed all around us. And God, we confess tonight that in some manner we need the power of your word demonstrated in our lives. And God, maybe tonight for some of us it's just that you would speak over our hearts, the turmoil that's in our minds and our hearts, God. The anxiety and the stress and the fear that has bound us up. God, that we would be loosed from that tonight. That you would, Lord Jesus, speak those, those mighty words, peace be still. And that as we choose to be anxious for nothing but to pray for everything, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding would surround would be like a sentry around our hearts. Maybe tonight, God, there's just there are chains that have bound bound us and we need to be loosed. We need to be loosed from them. We pray that we would trust in the power of your word tonight and that that even this evening there would be the breaking of chains. And tonight, for those of us who have yet to put our trust and faith in Christ, we pray that this would be the night. This would be the night where once and for all a decision is made. And that this would be an evening where even all of the angels in heaven rejoice. Tonight, as we're we're just closing in this moment of prayer, there's an opportunity for you to act upon what you've heard. And it is good to hear. It is good to hear But it is the expectation of God that with hearing there's going to be a response, that you're going to say yes and amen, that you're going to be in agreement with what God has said, what God has spoken to you tonight, that there's going to be an embracing of God's word in your life, that the word's not just going to bounce off a hardened heart or be choked out by the cares of this world But tonight, that the revelation that God has given to you, and he has spoken to you, and you know it, that you would receive it, that you would respond to it by by embracing it and aligning your life to it. That's what it means when you say amen. And so tonight, maybe you need to take that step of faith and trust in Christ for the very first time. And tonight, if this is you, I want to pray for you right where you're sitting. Our eyes are closed. Our heads are bowed. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand tonight. Is this you? You need deliverance. You need God to save you. You need to know that when you stand before him, you'll be clothed in his righteousness and and not your own efforts. God bless you. Thank you so much. I see your hand. Anybody else? Thank you. Awesome. I see your hand as well. You just stretch your hand up high. I see your hand in the back. I see your hand. Thank you. So good. You can put your hands down. Maybe tonight, maybe as a Christian, there are chains in your life that have bound you and and you know you need to be set free. Tonight, would you just raise your hand in an acknowledgement that you're going to embrace what God has spoken to you tonight and you're going to stand upon the power of his word to bring that deliverance that you need tonight if this is you stretch your hand up high i want to pray for you god bless you thank you thank you i see your hand and and yours and i see your hands thank you so much god bless you guys tonight maybe as a christian you know you just you you've been in turmoil and i i get i get what this is like because i've been there myself and you just want to receive the consolation of the Spirit of God speaking over your life. Peace be still. Tonight, if this is you, would you raise your hand? Awesome. Thank you. God bless you guys. All right. You can put your hands down. Let's all stand together. And Lord, we want to thank you and, and we want to praise you tonight for your faithfulness that you've spoken to us. and and you're good god you your steadfast love it never ceases and we pray father that he would be merciful god be merciful to answer god to answer these needs tonight tonight right where you're standing, I want to lead you this evening in a very very simple prayer and and God knows the need that you have maybe tonight is for salvation or the breaking of the chains of sin or maybe tonight it's just the, the fresh moving of god's spirit over your heart and mind and and that supernatural peace that passes understanding and just want to lead you in prayer tonight and I want to really strongly encourage you to pray with In anticipation, look, when you approach God by faith, he has bound himself to be faithful to answer your request. As you are asking according to his will, he will be faithful to supply. And so tonight, I want you to, to follow in this simple prayer. God, thank you for speaking to my heart tonight. And tonight I receive your word. Tonight I choose to believe. Tonight I turn away from sin. I turn away from unbelief. I turn to you. I turn to your son. And I receive Christ as my savior. His forgiveness and cleansing. His power to overcome sin, and His peace that surpasses all understanding. Oh God, tonight I pray, you would fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit, and help me to leave this place with a heart filled with praise, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen praise praise God